Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're talking with Judd Kessler and Corinne Lowe, two professors at the Wharton School who have been working on research into bias in hiring. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah thank you're you. welcome. You're welcome. Would you take um, a moment and introduce yourselves and, and tell us a little bit about how you came to study this question? Why don't you go first, Corinne? So I um, am a professor in my sixth year uh, working at Wharton, and I think this was really a project that kind of combined interests that uh, Judd and I had. So um, Judd has worked on various matching problems, you know, with the, has worked with the MBA program office on how do we match uh, students to classes, has worked in, you know, jobs as far as uh, teachers being assigned to um, to teaching jobs across America. and um, I had worked on a study that was about detecting preferences in dating, and so we put our heads together and we uh, kind of looked at this big matching problem that was um, facing seniors graduating from UPenn, which is, you know, how do they get matched with employers for jobs? And, you know, we thought about how can we study this process and maybe make this matching process better in some ways. So, Judd, Judd, how did you come to when you when you were a little guy? This couldn't be what you wanted to do when you grew up. So, how did you wind your way into studying um, matching inside of the job market? So, I, I, I think I knew I wanted to be an economist at an early age. The the research uh, that that brought me here, um, I think Corinne should give herself uh, even more credit. So. Um, when she was, I, I've been at Wharton a few years longer than her, and when she started, I, um, she gave her dissertation a paper, which was uh, investigating dating uh, preferences. Uh, but she did something that was very clever, which I'd never seen before in an experiment, which was she had people rate hypothetical dating profiles for how much they liked them, uh, but under a real incentive. So people had an incentive to, to be thoughtful and truthful, which uh, was uh, that they were going to get advice from someone who is going to uh, sort of an expert who is going to help them optimize their, their dating profiles to find uh, the kinds of matches that they were, were interested in or sort of revealed to be interested in through their rating. So when I saw that presentation, I thought about my own work, uh, Corinne and I got to talking and we said, this would be perfect to study the preferences of employers for candidates like the, the seniors at Penn that we were thinking about. Because uh, before, you know, at, at that point, to study preferences for candidates, uh, what researchers did was they, they mailed out fake resumes to employers. It's called a resume audit study. They'd mail out fake resumes. The resumes would be identical except for one variable, say the name of the candidate, which would reflect race and gender. And then the researchers would look to see what fraction of the resumes that they sent out got a callback. Uh, it would be a fake phone number or fake email address that the researchers would put on the fake resumes, um, and they'd see whether names of uh, – when the resume had a, a black name, black candidate name, they got fewer callbacks than when it had the same resume with a white candidate name. And that resume audit study had been around for a long time, and nobody had really innovated on it. And Corinne's sort of innovation of creating a platform where people could rate hypothetical candidates, in this case, you know, Penn seniors – 
um, but that we could give real incentives. We're going to match these employers who evaluate these fake resumes. We're going to match them with real Penn seniors based on their preferences. And once we had that as an idea, it, it sort of uh, created the opportunity to do this research. That's interesting. It's still, you, you know, one of the things I think that, that Amazon discovered when they tried to um, shed uh, bias from their hiring process with automated tools using the history of the company um, was that maleness or some other uh, attribute occurs all the way through the resume rather than just being a header or a footer on it. And um, I, w- I wonder if when you make um, the hypothetical resume, uh, do you do you have the kind of person who you're trying to understand in the demographics create that resume? Yeah, that's such a great question because that's sort of exactly what is innovative about this technique. So the the reason you can't use like real resumes to study bias in hiring is exactly what you said, is that there might be correlations between the traits that you're interested in, such as, you know, gender or race, and the experience that's on the resume. And so if you see that, you know, people tend to rate, you know, uh, female resumes lower, you don't know if that's because, you know, they are biased against women or because there's some sort of earlier stage issue that's happening where, you know, there's fewer women being computer science majors. And so that's why, you know, the big tech firms aren't, you know, picking as many female resumes out of the time, right? So in order to study this, we needed to create resumes that were exactly identical except for the name. And so when we did it, we actually created a software tool. So it's a a brand new tool where we create a bank of thousands of resume characteristics, work experiences, leadership skills, majors, all of the things that appear on a resume. And our tool goes through and pulls randomly from that bank of characteristics and creates a resume. We call it a Franken resume, like, you know, Frankenstein. And so it pulls these characteristics and creates a resume and then randomly assigns a name to the top of that resume. So that means statistically that resume is identical to another resume that somebody else sees that's been randomly assigned with a different name that connotes a different race or gender. So that's the key reason of why we have to create fake resumes. And then as Judd mentioned, then there's the second problem of, okay, once the resumes are fake, how do you get companies to really be honest and really tell you what their gut is telling them about that resume? Because, you know, you don't want them telling you, you know, the fake story that's like, oh, yeah, of course we would hire somebody even if they, you know, went to a bad school and had a low GPA. We're very open-minded here, right? You want to get the real story of who do you really actually hire? And so the way that we did that is we said, go through and rate these fake resumes for us, but we're going to put some teeth into that exercise because when you rate those fake resumes, our tool is going to use a machine learning algorithm to apply your preferences over these hypothetical resumes to a bank of hundreds of real candidates. So by screening our 40 fake resumes, we apply that screening that you did to hundreds of real resumes, and we're going to pick out the best matches based on your preferences. So, you know, if you don't want candidates from, you know, X and Y major, 
then you shouldn't rate those candidates highly in the hypothetical resumes because whoever you rate highly, that's who we're going to we're going to pick out for you. So that was that's why we call our tool incentivized resume rating because you're rating these hypothetical resumes, but you're incentivized to do that carefully and to do that in line with your real hiring practices because it's going to create a pipeline for you of real candidates that match those preferences. So, one one so, thing to add. Sure. Go. Sorry, I just wanted to add because I think there's a, another key point that Corinne didn't necessarily underline, but it's important, which is the when we went through and took those components from real pen resumes that then we could sort of mix and match to create the hypothetical resumes, we made sure to sanitize out anything that might be indicative of, of race or gender. So, you know, if if I was uh, previously on the men's varsity basketball team, uh, you know, on, on a resume, that would not appear as men's varsity basketball because that wouldn't, uh, you know, that would reveal something about uh, gender. Uh, instead, it would say, you know, Penn varsity basketball team. So that uh, it would be, you know, a little, a little different than it might have originally appeared on a resume, but that way we could very carefully control what information uh, people had when they were rating the, the fake resumes. What was the diversity composition of the resume source? Right, so because because the question the question that I started to ask this last time was, are there language patterns? And I, and and I believe there are. And there are companies that are out there designed to discover the language patterns that are indicative of the um, um, various various elements of diverse populations. Um, um, even fairly sanitized language still gives off signals of gender and, and um, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so, so the composition of the people who created the, the resumes that you then dissected and sanitized would be a pretty important variable, wouldn't it? And and, and so, so the question is, did you did you um, do something special to get the right mix of um, people in the source of the resume slices that you use? Yeah, I want to give yeah. two responses to that. Um, so the first, sorry, technology add-on. Um, so the first response is that we did, we just used the sort of um, UPenn student population. That's where the real resumes came from, and so it was a mix of you know the whole population. But the second response is that. Of course that matters if we are giving people, let's say, anonymous resumes. And then you say, well, could they detect, you know, oh, actually this resume belongs to X or Y. But that's not what we're doing. We take the components and we deconstruct them. Then we reconstruct them in sort of a random um, fashion, kind of mixed and matched um, between different resumes. And we add a name on top. And so the name tells you, you know, this is the candidate that you're looking at, and all of those characteristics are going to be used across multiple resumes. So let's say there's a certain um, leadership experience that you think is indicative of a sort of a certain background. Oh, I'll let, let me make a joke, be a little stereotypical. Let's say it's lacrosse, right? And you're like, I know what kind of person plays lacrosse. So that component, though, is not just going to be shown on one resume. That component is going to be shown multiple times, interacted with names of different gender and race. And so, again, we should be able to separate out um, the impact of the actual experience itself 
versus the impact of the gender or race that we're attaching to the resume. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure, but it's a it's a it's a, a nit. It's a nit. Um, so so what did you find out? Uh, so yeah, thanks. Uh, so it was quite interesting to us. I'll give you the sort of top line results on uh, on discrimination. So um, first thing to note is that in this method, we have employers, uh, hiring managers, recruiters. Uh, from, from firms who are doing on-campus re- recruiting at Penn, so they, they care about the incentive of getting real, real Penn seniors uh, to match with. Um, they, we survey them as part of the survey tool. Uh, besides rating the resumes, we ask them uh, about things like their, their interest in, in diversity. Uh, and the employers very systematically say that getting a diverse pool of candidates is very important to them. It's, it's, for many of them, it's one of the, the most important things that they're looking for uh, when they're, they're recruiting. So then, you know, that gives us uh, sort of hope, okay, maybe we'll see, uh, you know, preferences reflected in that way. Um, and for employers that were specifically recruiting for humanities and social sciences and business, um, we, we actually see no evidence of discrimination on, on this uh, question of how much do I like a candidate. Um, for, for employers recruiting for STEM in our sample, um, we do actually see that they rate Resumes that were randomly assigned uh, uh, female and minority names, uh, they, they rate them lower um, on how much they, they like the candidates. Um, and so that sort of the magnitude of that is uh, a white male candidate with a, a 3.75, is, is they're rating about equivalent uh, to a female or minority candidate with a 4.0. So it's about a quarter of a, of a, a GPA point uh, is, is the measure. They also sort of on, across all employers, we're seeing less credit uh, for prestigious internships uh, for female and minority candidates. And then one thing that was new was not something that we had seen in the literature before. Um, we actually asked em- employers who are, who are evaluating these resumes both about how much they like a candidate and also how likely they, they think that the candidate would accept the job if offered. So trying to tease apart these two questions of how much do I like somebody versus how much do I think they would like to join my firm. Um, and one thing that we found that was a bit of a surprise to us is that across every, across all employers, you know, average across all employers, we see that uh, employers think that in particular women are less likely to join uh, their firms. So again, with sort of a randomly assigned name at the top, if it's a female name, uh, they rate the candidate as being less likely to accept the job if offered. So is that that that's that's interesting? I, I, I'm not sure. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That 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 your your study shows that women are choosier. Yeah, that's such a great insight in that we think it's one of those things that um, you know maybe is a compliment, but that cuts against you because our theory of how employers would actually pursue candidates is that they pursue them based on you know how much benefit am I going to get for my recruiting. In, um, energies that I put into this candidate. And that benefit is made up of two components. That benefit is made up of the uh, um, skill that this person actually brings to my firm if I actually hire them, and my likelihood of being able to actually hire them. And so an example of this is that um, it's been found in this other literature, we talked about the resume audit literature, where people send fake resumes, that when, um, when researchers send fake resumes of unemployed 
versus employed candidates that firms call back the unemployed candidates more. Why would they call back the unemployed candidates more? Well, because they're putting their energy where it's likely to have a higher return. And they know with the employed candidates, you know, possibly this person's just trying to get a counter offer to get a raise at their current job. Maybe they're not really serious about their search. You know, maybe I'm not going to get a big return from this effort. And so the reality is even if, you know, the firms are saying, oh, this is because, you know, it, it's good for women. It's because so many people are going after them, you know, um, so they're going to be choosier. If it means that then those firms put less effort into hiring women, it could be a very subtle form of discrimination that's not intended as discrimination at all, um, but at the end of the day, results in women getting you know fewer calls, fewer offers. It, to, put, to, to add to that, it would have been different if we saw that in our ratings data, the women were getting much higher ratings on how much I want to go after a candidate and then lower ratings on, you know, how likely they are to come. Those two, those two, if we had seen that, that might have fit together in this in sort of uh, consistent way. But because we're seeing no benefit for women on how much, you know, I, I like the candidate, and in fact, for STEM employers, we're seeing, uh, you know, in our data that women are getting lower ratings on average, that doesn't mesh well with the, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're less likely to come because everybody's going after them. Uh, it's sort of empirically not, you know, not the case in our data, um, which then means that it's, you know, as Corinne said, a compliment that cuts against you. That's, that's such an interesting and complicated set of things to tease apart. I, I really appreciate the fact that you're doing it. And you've discovered a couple of things that, you know, I've been I've been watching this space for 25 years, and I don't think that I've seen anybody articulate so well the um, notion that people hire and make a decision that's partly influenced by what they think is the easiest path um, you, know, you know so much of the so much of the literature suggests that what people are after is a perfect match at the <clears throat> qualifications level um, and um, I, I haven't I haven't heard that particular insight before that's that's pretty interesting Um so the the next question might be um if you solved all of the bias at the um um sort of resume sifting point of the process if you could do that um does it actually have an effect on hiring So I think you know it Implicit in your question is, you know, are people just going to be biased later, right? So if we eliminate the bias at this, you know, upfront stage, does it just mean that later that candidate is going to get excluded, possibly for reasons of bias? And I think one of the key takeaways from our research, you know, at least the way that we viewed it, was that we, we took these firms at face value when they said to us, we want diverse candidates. That's one of our major hiring priorities. They actually told us in the um, survey we did with them, which was after they had done this resume rating um, exercise, they told us that this was one of the top things that they were looking for in candidates. It was one of their most important hiring priorities was actually expanding diversity. And I think for many of these firms, that's absolutely true. But what we were finding are these subtler forms of bias that, you know, you may not even be conscious of. And, in fact, we had some evidence that they were not conscious of it in that the form of bias that Judd described where the employers from STEM firms actually rated women lower, that bias appeared more when the raters were fatigued, when they'd rated more resumes in a row 
that was when that bias popped up more. So that tells us it's this switching to this automatic system where you're making decisions based on heuristics, based on um, mental shortcuts, and not, you know, maybe in this according to actually what you would say are your true conscious preferences or objectives. And so if it's the case that firms do really want to hire diverse candidates and that Unfortunately, because of the nature of sifting through so many hundreds and hundreds of resumes, they just naturally, you know, have to switch to this more automatic process where their brain has to process it quickly because you can't spend an hour debating every single resume you get. You have to make a snap decision. Um, then what we're saying is that they may be shooting their own goals in the foot. So they might want diversity but be kind of handicapping themselves based on this process where this unconscious bias creeps in. And if that's the case, then by getting rid of that or by at least diagnosing it, then they have that chance to make that longer, more reasoned, more thoughtful decision where you're not operating on that automatic snap decision um, in the mental process where then you might expect less bias. Now, if firms are just, you know, purposefully excluding women and minorities, then getting rid of the resume screening bias is not going to have an impact. So, so I, I think maybe I, I think about bias in a, in a slightly different way, and, and that is that um, organizations in and of themselves, regardless of the individuals involved, have some biases. Right, and they are. It's not really that they're conscious or unconscious, but there's a difference between what the policy people wish were the case and what the organization mm-hmm. is actually capable of. I mean, this is the this sort of the standard actual management problem of any substantive organization: is what you want it to do and what it will actually do are two different things. And it may or may not be identifiable as specific people doing specific behaviors, right? And so there's this sort of cultural and institutional bias or or cultural value set that's very, very difficult to change. And, And, you know, in my experience, what you see are really, really solid efforts at certain points in the process with the assumption that solving those process points actually addresses the larger cultural problem and the two things may not have anything to do with each other. Right. And so, so the, the, the question that I was asking is, is can you use this sort of input into the pipeline moment as a way to really shift the culture because it's the culture that has the bias rather than the individual raters. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're completely could... preaching to acquire on that. Uh, for me, I, I always say that same thing, that I think, uh, you know, we're always eager to make, like, cheap and showy reforms, <laughs> but never to actually make the reforms <laughs> exactly. that actually hurt and actually have an impact, you know. Um, but I think the one thing, you know, we we think that this tool can do is, is make explicit something that's implicit. So because it's implicit bias, it is hidden, and firms are saying, we are doing everything we can to recruit diverse candidates. Why can't we get them? Hmm. And, you know, by – by undergoing this diagnosis, the firms are realizing actually there are these deeper problems that mean we're not doing everything that we can. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think, I think it's so big. I saw I saw a vice president of talent acquisition at United Airlines 
of the day that they merged the diversity and inclusion and recruiting departments into a single entity, right? That's the that's the kind of change that's probably closer to to what mm-hmm. you want to do. I will say, you know, one thing. As academics, we we often uh, use the metaphor of standing on the shoulders of giants. And basically, the idea is we like to believe that incremental improvements, at least in knowledge, uh, you know, can help uh, solve big bigger problems. Um, so, you know, it might be that it's it really does take these sort of big changes. But I think one thing that that any firm that cares about this issue could do is take, you know, the first step, which, you know, in the, in the case of, of incentivized resume rating, it would be have the frontline staff who are doing the recruiting, doing the resume screens, have them take the, the diagnostic tool and, and see sort of on average across the people who are doing recruiting at your firm, do they display these subconscious biases, uh, you know, in, in, against certain demographic groups? And, and in addition, what, what do they care about? You know, in our sample, uh, we, we talked about the discrimination, but we also saw a bunch of stuff about what the employers cared about. They really cared about prestigious internships much more than a regular internship. They really cared about high GPAs, as you might expect, um, and, and you know, sort of certain interactions between those variables. So, you know, one thing is to, is to see, okay, how, to what extent are people uh, who are doing these screening, screenings at your firms, to what extent do they care about different characteristics? To what extent are they displaying discrimination, if any? Um, and are those characteristics that the, presumably you don't want discrimination at all, uh, but also you might, you might disagree, the leadership might disagree with the recruiters on the ground about sort of which, which mm-hmm. characteristics are most relevant, you know? And so those are the kinds of things that, uh, that the diagnostic tool can let you do. And, and I think, you know, on the discrimination point, it's a first step to, to see uh, if these things are sneaking in, um, you know, in the in this first uh, recruiting stage because of the subconscious bias, perhaps uh, that that Corinne mentioned. What and is, yeah, what I think it, exactly to your point, it, it's about it can potentially reveal that mismatch, as Judd said, that you know, hey, the firm leadership thinks we're doing one thing, but something different is happening on the ground. Yeah, it's a, this is this is a, the place where the next layers of um, great research from places like Wharton are going to happen in this difference between what the leadership wants and what the organization will do. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Would you reintroduce yourselves and tell people where they might learn more about the study? Judd, you go first. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm John Kessler. I'm an associate professor of business economics and public policy at the Wharton School. If you're interested in learning more, you can email me at judd.kessler at wharton.upenn.edu. Um, and I am Corinne Lowe. Um, I'm an assistant professor of business economics and public policy at the Wharton School. Um, I both Judd and I have uh, taught in the MBA program at the Wharton School, and so of course, you know that's a, that's one way you can learn more. As we hope we're teaching it in our in our classrooms, but you can also go to both of our websites. So if you just Google our names, you should be able to find our websites and you know 
um, the study is actually available on there. It's also forthcoming. This paper that we described is forthcoming in the November issue of the American Economic Review. And so if you just look at the AER website, you can also find a copy of the, um, of the study there, and you can read all of our results. Of course, there's a lot more technical details that you know, we didn't want to bore you with, so if you're interested in learning more. And you're also welcome to reach out to us. As Doug gave his email. Mine is corlow, C-O-R-L-O-W, at wharton.upenn.edu. And we'd be happy to talk about you know, uh, how the lessons from our study can be applied to actually help firms solve their real hiring problems. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this. It's very interesting work. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Judd Kessler and Corinne Lowe, who are professors at the Wharton School looking into bias in hiring. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you back here same time next week. Bye-bye now. 